0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you guys for coming today. Open up. How many of you guys have ever played the game hide-and-seek? Have you guys played it before? So you know how to play hide-and-seek then, right? One person has to cover their eyes and count. And then everybody else runs and hides, right? Well, I want to play hide and seek with you guys this morning, but we're going to make all of you be it. And everyone else in the congregation has to hide. Okay? And then you guys have to find them. Can we do this? All right. So, congregation, I need you to follow my instructions carefully because I don't want anybody to get hurt because you're old. (laughs) And we don't want any broken hips, and we don't want any tripping and your craziness as you're running trying to hide, okay? Okay, so guys, what I want you to do is I'm going to have you cover your eyes, and then I'll count just a second, but before I count, I'll give the people instructions on how and where they're supposed to hide, okay? Alright, so everybody, what? Tell them where I'm going. No, I'm going to give you instructions. Don't move until I give you instructions. They won't hear or see anything that I'm telling. I mean, that, that, that's going <laughs> to where you're going to be. Okay, everybody in the front row here, close your eyes, cover your eyes with your hands, and don't peek. Okay, everybody close your eyes, cover your eyes with your hands, and don't peek. Now, adults, when you go to hide, this is what you're going to do. Okay, everyone understands? When you go to hide, this is all you're going to do. Ready? Okay, keep your eyes closed, kids. Everyone hide. Okay, is everyone hidden? Looks like everyone's hidden. Alright guys, let's count from, bed, from ten backwards. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. One. Okay, go find all the adults. Oh my goodness. <laughs> did you find them? Yeah, everywhere. How did you find them? You found them so quickly. How did you guys go over your eyes, everybody? You can open your eyes. How did you find them so quickly? They're not hiding. Nah, nah, nah. Have you ever heard of an ostrich? Do you know what ostriches do when they're in trouble and they're in danger and they're scared? they put their head down into the sand and they raise their face so that they can be totally hidden. But their whole body is still showing. But they think they're totally hidden. And see, I want to talk to you. I'm going to talk to all of the adults in just a few minutes about somebody who thought he was hiding from God. But I want to show you what it says in the Bible when it talks about God and how he knows about us. I'm going to read out of Psalm 139, and I'm going to read verses 7 to 12, and I want you to listen carefully what it says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down under the ground, you're there. If I could take wings and fly to where the morning is, and dwell in the farthest most parts of the sea, even there you will be there leading me, and your strong and powerful hand will hold me. If I say, I'm going to hide in the dark, because he can't find me there, it will be like light is all around me, because even in the dark, it's like bright noonday when you're present. The darkness... Is like light to you, God. See, there's absolutely no place, the Bible tells us this, there's no place we can go where God can't see us. Where God, we think He might not be able to see us, but God can still see you no matter what. And what that means is you can trust Him, you can depend on Him. Even when you think you're all alone. Even when you're feeling afraid and scared because you feel like nobody's there and you're all by yourself and everything's going bad. You can know that God still sees you and he will be with you. He will never, ever, ever leave you. I want to pray with you guys. I'm going to ask you then to go back and sit with your folks or go back to that room wherever you're at. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would bless each one of these kids. And I ask you, God, to please help them to grow to understand. That there's no place that they can go where you will not be there already. Where you will not be present with them. And that you can take care of them no matter what. Bless them, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, you guys can head on back. And see you in the while. old people were worried, I was going to make you run around. Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I told the kids, i put these on so I can see, as I told the kids, we're going to be looking at a story in the Bible about a man who was running and hiding, thinking he was hiding from God, when indeed he, he couldn't hide from God, because God knows exactly what all of us are that guy's name is Jonah, you've probably already figured that out without me saying it, so go ahead and open your Bibles, because we are literally going to look at all four chapters this morning, which is a whopping 28, I mean 48 verses, we can read through the whole thing in less than 7 or 8 minutes, we're not going to, but we could, so open up to Jonah. Jonah. Jonah is one of the twelve minor prophets in the Old Testament. And minor does not mean that he is um, less then or not as good as... The way it works in the Bible, the way they've got the, the, the prophecies set up, there are four major prophets. Actually, there are five major prophecy books, but two of the books were written by the same guy, so it's actually only four prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah, but he also wrote the book of Lamentations. So, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Daniel are the four major prophets. The book of Lamentations is included in those four major prophets. White books. So there's five major prophecies, and then there are twelve minor prophets, and the word minor simply means they're a smaller book. It doesn't mean that what they say is any less important, it doesn't have a less of an impact, it doesn't, it's not any less the word of God, it's just their books are smaller. And in Jonah's case, like I said, his, his book is literally only 48 verses long. It's, it's uh, four chapters, it's, and we'll look at each of those four chapters. But it's very, very short and easy. Actually, one of my daughters, it was her favorite book in the whole Bible, because she could read through it in one sitting, and she did read it over and over again as a young person. She loved that. She could tell you backwards, forwards, inside and out exactly what happened in that story. And I hope by the time we're done this morning that you'll have a better understanding of what Jonah is, who Jonah was, and why this story is important, and why God included him in the Bible. Now, as I said, Jonah is a prophet. He is well known in... Um, in the Old Testament time, as well as he was quoted by Jesus, as a matter of fact. We're not going to take the time this morning to look at that, but if you go to the Gospel story, Jesus himself talked about Jonah. Because see, there are some people, some scholars, uh, but it was, up until the 1800s, nobody questioned that Jonah was a real guy. Nobody questioned that his story wasn't real. But in the 1800s, when we got real smart. <laughs> All of a sudden we started questioning whether or not this was a real story, or was it just allegory, was it just a parable? But up until the 1800s, for the better part of 2,000 years, everyone trusted that John was real, and that his story was real. And then you'll also have this thing that says it was a whale that ate him, and we'll look at this in a minute. It doesn't say whale in the Bible, it says big fish. So, we don't understand a lot of what's in here, and we just have to, some of it we're just gonna think at face value and just trust it, but we're gonna look at this all this morning. The one thing that I want you to know though, and I want you to hear this, uh, wholeheartedly, Jonah is a well-known, well-respected prophet of God in the nation of Israel. He's not just some lie-by-night guy, who just happens to hear a word from God saying, go to Nineveh and declare this thing on them. And then he goes and then he becomes, goes back into obscurity afterwards. That's not who he was. He was a well-known prophet. Just like Isaiah. Just like Ezekiel. Just like Jeremiah. Just like Hosea. Just like Habakkuk. Just like Micah. And the other thing that's cool and the way we know that he's real is if you go to 2nd Kings chapter 14 verse 25. It says this: Jeroboam the king, Jeroboam the second, recovered the territories of Israel between Hamath and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had prophesied, had promised through Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. So there's this guy named Jonah, son of Amittai, who was a prophet from a city or town called Gath-Hefer, mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14. If you look at the very first verse of the very first book, or chapter in, in the book of Jonah, what does it say? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So the son of Amittai, known as Jonah, was a well known prophet, and his prophecies were recorded and proven to be true in 2 Kings chapter 14. Which that's important. If you if you go back and read the Levitical Law, it says that if a person says that they're a prophet and then the words that they prophesy don't come to pass,
1: then you can trust that they're not a
0: prophet, and they're really heard from God, and you can not, it says literally in the Bible, you don't have to worry about them anymore. That's literally what it says in the Word of God. So, Jonah has established himself as a person who has been given the ability to hear the Word of God and proclaim it to the people that he has been charged to give the Word to. Now, the other thing that I learned when I was doing my study, Jonah is the oldest recorded prophecy in all of the Bible. Now, I should say in Genesis talks about the oldest time, it talks about the time when the, the seed of Adam is going to um, squ- crush the, the head of the serpent, and quote, unquote, that's the oldest. But the book of Genesis was written after the book of Jonah. At least that's what I understand. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. But Jonah was the oldest prophet who was recorded. There's, that's a better way to say it. Jonah was the oldest recorded prophet, rather than saying his prophecy was the oldest. Anyway. Now, Gath Hefer, have you ever heard of that, ter- that, that place before, other than just reading it here in, in Jonah? Gath Hefer was in, the, in the, um, the area known as Galilee in the time of Christ. Gath Hefer is a small town or village that was three miles from Nazareth. Gath Hefer is a very famous biblical town, even though you've never heard of Gath Hefer before. Why? Because Hefer became known as, by the time Jesus was on the earth, became known as the village or town of Cana. Do you know where Cana is and what Cana is famous for? Jesus performed his very first miracle in the village of Cana. Jesus attended a wedding with his disciples and his mother came in and said, they have run out of wine. And Jesus was like, what is that to me? She's like do whatever he tells you to do. And he's like, "Mm -hmm." (sighs) okay, fine. Fill these water jugs and then take take what you dipped up out of the water jug to the master of the the feast and the water turned into wine. That's the village of Cana, three miles from Nazareth. Now, this guy named Jonah, the son of Amittai, who is a regular and well-known and well-established prophet, has... An interface with the God of all gods, and God says to him, I have a prophecy that I need you to declare to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh is a town, or it's actually a city in what is now modern day Iraq. Have you ever heard the term, the, the name of the, of the city called Mosul in Iraq? Have you heard that in the news at all? That's Nineveh. Actually, Nineveh is just on the outskirts of where Mosul is. But Nineveh is a real place that still to this day you can go upon their ruins. And Nineveh is located about 550 miles from Beirut, Lebanon. And it's important to know that in just a little bit. Okay? So let me give you a, a little bit of an understanding of what 550 miles is from Beirut, Lebanon. Okay, Beirut is right on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Nineveh, or Mosul, is five hundred and fifty miles from there. How many miles is it from Anchorage to Fairbanks? If you go to the sign out on the park's highways, is it 354 or 357? I think it is. Okay. That uh, if so so that's less than from Mosul or Nineveh to Beirut. So if you need to understand what 550 is. It's 555 miles, as I looked it up this morning on Google Maps. If you started your journey in, um, on the Turnigan Arm down south of Anchorage, if you've ever traveled down there, there's a really cool place where you can stop to get ice cream, and you can also get pizza in that, in that little shopping center. It's in a place called, uh, God, where is I had it written down. Girdwood. Girdwood, thank you. It's in a small little place called Girkwood. and the history of the the thing that Girkwood is famous for is in the 1964 earthquake in Alaska, the water came in and flooded that area, the salt water killed all the trees, and so you've got this stand of old trees that's just there, dead, and that's their claim to fame, is that they were under the water during the 1964 earthquake. But if you started your thing at Girkwood, which is just a little bit south uh, north of, of the Whittier area. And then you got on the Parks Highway, or the, excuse me, you got on the, on the Trinity and you came up into Anchorage, then you processed through Anchorage, and you got onto the Parks Highway, and you went along through Eagle River, and up into Pont La and then all the way up to Fairbanks, and then when you get to, to, uh, Airport Road in Fairbanks, the, the Richardson, I mean, the Parks Highway becomes the Steese Expressway, then you take it all the way up to Fox, and then you take the Steese, and not the Elliott, All the way up until you get to the Yukon River when you're at Circle. From Girdwood to Circle is 555 miles. So, Beirut, Lebanon, to Mosul, which is where Nineveh was, is 550 miles. So now you have a little bit of an understanding of that distance and how long. How long does it take to drive from Girdwood all the way up to Central? Does anybody have a clue? It's about eight hours from here to Anchorage. That's another hour to hour and a half down to Girdwood. So that's nine and a half hours. And then from Fairbanks up to Central, how much? About an two, two and a half hours. So, so you're talking a good one, 10, 12 hour drive at 65 and 60 miles an hour average. Okay. So it takes a while to drive it. And don't have it walking. Or ride on a camel. Or catch a cart. Or a caravan. But it took more than a day or two for him to get from the shore of the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Nineveh. And that's important in just a second. I just wanted to make sure you understood that. Okay? So if you look at the book of Jonah, chapter 1, it says, the word of God came to Jonah and Jonah immediately said, yes sir, and went to Nineveh. Not. The very first thing Jonah did was he literally went to Joppa, which is on the seacoast of the Mediterranean Sea, and he, and Joppa is famous in the New Testament because that's where Simon Peter was on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house when God said to Simon Peter take and eat of the things that are on that sheet that I just lowered to you. It's a vision that Simon Peter had, and Simon Peter said, I will never do that, God. I have been, the whole, I have lived a holy and pure life before you, and I've been kosher my whole life, and I will never eat anything that's not kosher. I will never eat anything that's unclean. And God says, in that vision to Simon Peter, God said, never call anything unclean that I have declared clean. And then God removed that, that sheet, and then he lowered again in another vision, and three times that thing happened, and then what happened? Knocked on the door, and Cornelius, the centurion, had sent messengers down to Joppa to get Simon to bring him back, Simon Peter, to get him to come back up to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius, I mean, and Simon Peter preached to the Gentiles, and they got saved and sanctified, and became part of the church. Because God had declared to Peter, do not call anything unclean that I have declared clean, and he did it in the city of Joppa. The story of Jonah is that Jonah gets the word to go and declare the word of God to these vile, nasty people in Nineveh, and he turns the opposite direction from Nineveh and goes to Joppa and gets on a boat. And that boat, scholars believe, was piloted by Phoenicians who knew the water very, very well and were very, very skilled in that in, in the seafaring. And so, what they would do. For those of you who have ever traveled, they actually would would bring the boat out into the Mediterranean Sea, but then they would ride along the coast. I mean, it was way, way, way out, but you could still see the land or be very near the land. They would not just go across the Mediterranean. They would go along the contours of the Mediterranean, following the shore. Again, they were way, way out. So something happens in this story. Uh, Jonah gets the word of God, he he disobeys God, he tries to run and hide from God, he then uh, books passage to, the Bible says Tarshish. Well, what scholars understand Tarshish to actually be is a place called Tartessus, Tartessus, T-A-R-T-E-S-S-U-S, Tartessus, which is located in Spain. It's 2,500 miles away from Java. (laughs) He's trying what did it say that in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 11, that I just took 12 that I just read to the kids? Even if I went to the uttermost parts of the ocean, God would still see me and God would be there. Hallelujah. And Jonah, who supposedly knows all this, this man of God, who has intimate contact with God, God gives him a word, and his first thought is I'm gonna get as far away from God as I can possibly get from God. And he gets on a boat heading for Spain, 2,500 miles away. And God goes, <clears throat> I don't think so, Jonah. And all of a sudden, this storm happens. And these Phoenician skilled sailors are panicked. They have never seen such a storm come up so suddenly. And they begin praying to their gods. All while Jonah is laying in the belly of that ship, asleep. And the captain of the ship comes to Jonah and goes, What are you doing? You should be praying like the rest of us. Now, Jonah had, scholars believe, had probably already told the people on the ship why he was leaving and traveling. But the bottom line was, they said, You should pray to your God. And he, he gets up and they, said, and they said, Who is your God? Let's, let's read that right out of um, the first few verses of chapter 1. It said, uh, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Skilled, seasoned sailors were afraid, each crying out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea, trying to light the load so that the ship wouldn't break up. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and was laid down fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to another, "Let's cast lots, so we can know on whose account this evil has come upon us." So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they turned to Jonah and they said, them, tell us what is this? On whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And what people are you?" And he says to them, "Now this is the preacher of Jonah coming out. Okay, he was hiding from God, but the very words that he says here is gospel. He says, uh I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. He didn't have to say that. But he has a call on his life to prophetically speak the word of God to the people and let them know who God is. And he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I serve the only true God. As a matter of fact, he's the God who created all of creation, including this water that we're so afraid of, and the wind that we're so afraid of. And what does it say the Phoenicians did? The men were then exceedingly afraid. And they said, What have you done For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then they said to him, "What shall we do, that the sea sea can quiet down for us?" For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, "Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And nevertheless, now listen. What's going on? What can we? Start rowing the ship. Remember, I said they were along the coastline. They're rowing the ship, trying to get out of the sea and get closer to shore. And it says, um, uh, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard, verse 13, trying to get back to dry land. But they couldn't, for the sea kept growing more and more tempestuous against them. You see, God is not allowing. Humans to do anything against what God has declared is going to happen, and God has an ordained meeting right now with Jonah in the middle of that sea, and therefore they cried out to the Lord, "Oh Lord, don't let us perish." If the Phoenicians who serve all these other gods turn to the one true God, and they say, "Don't let us perish because of us throwing him in the water." He told us to do it. Don't lay on us the innocent blood. Don't lay, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and as the Vegetal story showed, total glass, not really, but that's what VeggieTales said. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. So God said, I don't think so, Jonah. I have a job for you. I put a call on your life. I know you heard me. And I'm not giving up. I'm not allowing you to walk away. I'm going to even make it so difficult for you that you have no choice but to do what I told you to do. And literally, what happens now And this is a little bit discombobulated because the way it's written is a prayer reflecting on what happened, okay? So we're going to read through his prayer, but realize that his prayer was written after the fact, okay? This this prayer wasn't exactly the words that he said while he was in this situation, but it was a reflection of what had happened after the fact. He did pray. I have no question that he prayed. But I don't think he prayed these words, but let's, let's read through what it says. Verse 17, chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But the, the fish did not come up to the side of the boat and go, ah, and they throw him into the mouth of the fish. That's not what happened. It says they threw him into the water, the storm calmed, and what happens to Jonah? Read on in chapter 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, which is the area of the dead, I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. He wasn't treading water, he was sinking. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet again I shall look upon your holy temple. What that verse is saying is, God, I want you in my life. Even in this last moment of my life, I know I've been in a rebellion against you. But I watch in my life; I'm turning myself towards the temple, metaphorically speaking. He's drowning right now. Verse five: The waters closed in over me to take my life. Again, he's sinking deeper and deeper. The deep surrounds me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. He literally sunk to the deepest part of the ocean or the, the Mediterranean Sea at that point, to the point where he was in the weeds. And in his struggle, trying to hold his breath, trying to to fight, all of a sudden he's getting caught up in all the weeds. He's literally at what he calls the the root of the mountains. I'm at the deepest part of the Mediterranean Sea, and I'm dying. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away... He's literally, literally about to die. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who paid regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and now skip back up to verse one, chapter one, verse seventeen. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah found himself in the belly of the fish. For three days, for three nights. See, Jonah gets thrown out of the boat, and he begins sinking, and he's literally drowning, and he's almost at the very point of extinguishing, he's gonna be dead any second, and all of a sudden at that moment when he finally turns his heart back to God and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I will honor you, I will worship you. A, a fish comes up, preordained, because remember Jonah told us earlier in chapter one that God is the God of all creation, he controls everything. So God had exactly at the right moment this fish turn and go towards where Jonah was and he sees something struggling and he goes, Oh? Now we don't know what type of animal this is. We're not given that information and I'm not going to go there with you guys this morning. Who cares whether it could open its jaw big enough to get a man? Who cares? If it's, who cares? The bottom line, the Bible says, this happened, I have to believe it. But think about it. If you were swallowed by some creature underwater, but you could live for a couple of days, there had to be an air pocket for you to breathe in. It wouldn't have been good air, but it would have been at least oxygenated somewhat. Now imagine there's this slimy, hot, goopy, yucky, slimy, touching and pressing against you, and there's just a bubble right here where you can breathe. You're stuck inside the intestine or stomach of this great fish. You can't do anything, but you're still alive. You don't understand why. You're just stuck there. And you can breathe. Okay? or two or three I have no idea, but somewhere along that shore, Jonah comes up, bleached, goopy piece of ceiling stuck right here, and people are freaking out because there's no such thing as showers on the beach. It's not like you can just go and change your clothes out of your bathing suit and get into your normal street clothes. He's wearing this stuff now because this is all he has. And he has to somehow get to Nineveh to honor the vow that he made before God. And remember, I said it was 555 miles from where he gets out out of the ocean, out of the sea, until he gets to Nineveh. You don't think words going to spread that this really freaky, gross, disgusting man with seaweed in his hair? comes up out of the ocean saying God had him in the belly of a fish for three days and he's got to get to Nineveh. You don't think that word got to Nineveh long before Jonah got to Nineveh? And so the Ninevites have already heard rumor that something's coming their way. They don't know what it is, but something's coming. And then finally, however long it takes, Jonah arrives. It says, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He's still on the beach. <laughs> and it says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I told you to tell you. So Jonah rose this time and then he went. He didn't even question it. But and it says that Nineveh is an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth." That doesn't say three days' journey away. That's a 3 days' journey for him to get around the city. And again, we're not going to talk about how big the city was and all this. And some people said that it was 60 miles, but some people said, no, it's only 8 miles. And some people said, eh, who cares? The bottom line is it's a huge city, and his job is to call them to fast, and call them to repentance. Verse 6, chapter 3, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his throne, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. And issued a proclamation that said, everyone, not just me, everyone, we are all going to honor this God. We are going to repent. We are not going to allow ourselves to be destroyed because of what God is holding against us. And so they repented. Yay! woo Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah was curious. It displeased him exceedingly. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said to the Lord, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Spain. For I knew, I knew, I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were merciful and slow, and I ended Therefore, now just, God, take my life away from me. It's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord doesn't zap him. And the Lord doesn't chastise him. The Lord, for all intents and purposes, sits down with him and says, What are you so angry about? Verse 5 Jonah went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what he could become of the city. While he was sitting there, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be shaved for his head to save him from his discomfort. Hmm. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. And then the sun rose and God appointed a scorching east wind. And scholars believe that was a Sirocco. I can't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but a Sirocco wind. Which literally means 110, 115 degree temperatures. Hot, blistering, hot, dry wind. Has no shade because the plant has withered and died. And now he's sitting in this blistering, hot sun in the middle of a rock with this hot wind blowing on him and he's miserable. And again he says, Jonah was, so, it was beating on him so much that he literally was faint. And he asked that he could just die. And he said, God, it's just better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Why are you so angry about a plant? I mean, you're saying that you're angry enough to die. And Jonah said, Yes, it is. I just want to die. I'm so angry. And the Lord said to him, You can a plant, but you didn't have anything to do with You didn't labor, you didn't plant it, you didn't help it to grow. It just sprung up in a night, and it perished in a night. Should I have pity on a city like Nineveh, where there's more than 120,000 people who don't even know their right hand from their left, as well as the animals that are there? And the story ends. There's no resolution. And it's like... Ugh. I want it to resolve. I want it to be. No, no, either either Jonah goes off in his sulky mood, or Jonah relents it. Jonah oh, yeah, you're sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Moves on. Some of the things think about what his motivation was. What was he why was he so angry? Well, number one, we said it earlier. If a prophet prophesies something and it doesn't come to pass, then you don't consider him a prophet anymore and you don't worry about him. You just so his job as a prophet, his career as a prophet, kind of like, is tanked. Because God declared, he spoke it, and then God changed his mind. Well, thanks, God. Everyone's going to believe me now, next time you give me a word, quote-unquote. But doesn't God have the right to be God? Doesn't God... Have the authority as God to say, you know what? Change my mind. I see their heart. I see that they've repented. I truly hear their their cries for mercy. And yeah, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna grant them mercy at least for now. There should be rejoicing on the part of the prophet. God used me to rescue more than 120,000 souls from from death. Thank God, Hallelujah. But instead. Stupid. This is ridiculous. Not only that, this God of oh all gods. A God who controls the world. God who can make a, a fish come up and swallow me for three days. A God who can make him spit about it in the right spot. A God who can do all of that. He didn't kill my plant. <sighs> Why couldn't he just leave me alone? I mean, he has to throw this hot wind about I me. Mean, this is just stupid. This is wrong. This is just stupid, stupid, stupid. You hear the pettiness? You hear the little kid stomping around, the little toddler. You're not stop Stop Well, hold up the mirror, folks. If you're a child of God, who has, as Roy mentioned this morning entirely sanctified. You're yielding yourself, your will, your personal everything to God. And God the Holy Spirit has come in in an instant and changed that which was broken on the inside of you. that was always wanting to go against Him. And then from that moment on, it helps you to grow more and more and more like Christ. Where you want to serve God and honor God with your whole being and recognize that He is indeed the God of all gods and the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. And then, stop the resurrection! I can't go visit with my friends, and I didn't get to go to my party, and I just... And that's just a tiny little thing in your life. What about, and forgive me, my friend may not be alive in a year or a month, Reason together. Can you help me understand why you're struggling so much? Can you help me to understand why there's so much angst? Can you help me to understand why you're angry with me? Because I don't get it. I'm not. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm not saying you can't. I'm, go ahead and be as angry as you want. But let's let's think this through. If you say I'm God and you truly believe, I'm God, then, can I be God? Can I be God? And you just say, yes sir. Oh, isn't that horrible? I violated you by making you say sir to me. Or man, whichever way you want to look at it. Oh, I just crossed the line there. <laughs> Do you get it? If indeed, you called him Lord, that means, He's Lord! If indeed, He's Lord! Why are you so angry? Why do you get so upset? Why do you get so frustrated? And I know it's very hard. I have struggled since 2012. I've struggled longer than that, but when I'm trying to reason it out, I have struggled with the idea of the providence of God. That God has the right and the authority to do whatever God chooses, and I just have to understand that that's God's work. And I don't have to understand it, I just have to accept it. And I don't like to just have to accept it, I want to understand it. I want to have him tell me why. I want to have him tell me, make me part of the team, so that I can come alongside and just say yes. But you know what? What's so funny about that thought for me, is I was in the military for 21 years, and the last 7 to 10 years of my military career, the younger troops coming in, Need to be brought onto the team. They needed to be explained why you were issuing orders to them. They needed to be told why it was important for them to come alongside and join you. And I was like, do You swore a oath. No? You said you would honor and obey the orders of the people who were fighting about you. I don't need to explain you, just get out of the order and do what I tell you to do. Yeah. I had the right to do that as an NCO in the United States Air Force, but God doesn't have the right to say that to me. And so, there is no end to the story. Why? Because you get to play with it for a while and think about it and look at it for yourself and say, God, if I was Jonah, if I was sitting there just outside of Nineveh, just pushed it up and angry, and you came alongside and said, can you help me to understand why you're so upset? What would I say to you, God? What would I say? That's the end. Let's pray. God, this is your story. This is your purpose. This is your plan. I pray, Father, that you would work in the hearts of your people. That Jesus.